We're in Mark chapter 5. So if you have a Bible or a Bible on your phone, turn to Mark chapter 5. I was thinking about really the theme tonight. The theme tonight is how Jesus is not a one-dimensional Savior. The beginning of John's Gospel, he said that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. We tend to think of Jesus kind of in, in, in one-dimensional terms. We tend to think of him as gracious, merciful, tender, or powerful. It's hard sometimes to keep it all together. Jesus is not a one-dimensional Savior. And these two stories in chapter 5 of Mark, I think, bring this out really well. Um, you know, you can't do ministry, college ministry, any kind of ministry for very long before you hear somebody say this, well, my Jesus is not like that. We all have ideas about who Jesus is, and all of us uh, really do need the scripture to help correct and balance out who Jesus really is. As I said, he's not one-dimensional. I was thinking of that as we were singing this hymn, Come Ye Sinners. I love this old hymn written by Joseph Hart back in the 1700s. I love this line, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. Now that's great alliteration. It's good songwriting. Uh, But it's even better, it's even better news that Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He isn't just one who kind of looks out at the world of brokenness and just weeps, though he does that. He also is one who triumphed over death. And even now, Scripture tells us, upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. When you think of Jesus, think of Jesus as the one who stands ready to save you, full of pity, joined with power. Jesus is not a one-dimensional Savior, and that is such good news. We're going to see this here in Mark chapter 5. We're going to pick up at verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored Jesus earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? 
And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Come on. He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. But while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, from Jairus's house, some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those were with him and he went into where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kami, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these just beautiful stories. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came, that you walked among us, that you brought hope and healing. We pray that tonight you would bring hope and healing because we need it too. Send your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's really only two main points I have tonight. One is just sort of setting the stage, kind of talking about the story and what happens. And the second is this. If Jesus is more than just a one-dimensional Savior, then relationship with him always involves more than you bargained for. If Jesus is more than a one-dimensional Savior, then relationship with him always involves more than you bargained for. And to see that, well, we need to, to go back over the story and point out a few things here. So Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, an important guy, comes to Jesus, begs for help to heal his daughter. Jesus agrees and heads that way, followed by a huge crowd and the disciples. But there's this woman with a chronic bleeding problem who comes up behind him, touches his robe, and is immediately healed. Now, this woman is really pitiful. You have to feel for her, and certainly Jesus feels for her. Uh, the description is just so sad. Not only has she had this discharge of blood, which is not just like physically, I, I don't know, I mean, it'd be horrible, right? But particularly in this culture, bleeding would make you ritually unclean. 
Bleeding that couldn't be dealt with would mean you have no business touching a rabbi. She's went to doctors, she spent all the money she had, and she's actually worse. Maybe some of you can relate, right? Sometimes we think if we can just find the right expert, everything can be made better. But what happens when the best people that you can find are of no help? and maybe only make it worse. And so she basically, basically just kind of decides, I'm just going to touch his garments. If I can just squeeze through the crowd and touch him, then I can be healed. She's heard about Jesus. At this point in his ministry, there are crowds following him. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. People don't really understand what he's all about. Even the disciples, as we're going to see, are still pretty clueless about Jesus' overall game plan. But they know that he has power and that healing and casting out of demons is going around where Jesus is. But then, really to the consternation of everybody here, Jesus stops and asks, who touched me? The disciples are almost incredulous, right? They're like, Jesus, like everybody's touching you. (laughs) Like you're in the middle of this crowd, right? It's like the mosh pit. Like everybody's crowded around you. Of course people have touched you. What are you talking about? Jairus is probably a little anxious. After all, they're on the way to help his daughter. And the situation is urgent. And all of a sudden, Jesus just stops. They're on the way. And all of a sudden he stops and it's like, who touched me? And, and he's probably got to be a little like, oh, well, hold on. I thought we were going to take care of my daughter. What's going on now? Why, why did we stop? Right? Don't you understand, Jesus? My situation is urgent. The woman, what do you think the woman's feeling? She's surely mortified. She had no intention of being seen. She had no intention of interacting with Jesus at all. But he's not going to let her get away with that. He stops and he says, who touched me? As I said, touching a rabbi was something she should not have done. No wonder she comes forward with fear and trembling. But while Jesus is talking to her, interacting with her, somebody comes up from Jairus' house and says, your daughter has died. His worst fears. And it's because Jesus stopped to deal with this other woman. Jesus, what are you doing? I thought, we, I th- I thought you were on my, my side, and here we're going to take care of my daughter, and then you get stopped and you turn around and now you have this whole interaction. Meanwhile, my daughter has died. And, and, the, and the person that comes says, quit bothering Jesus. There's nothing else he can do. What you wanted from him is now no longer possible. I'll bet Jairus is frustrated, maybe even furious. And, and here's the first point I want to I make from this text. Can you put yourself in the shoes of Jairus? 
Can you identify with those who feel like Jesus' agenda can be so frustrating at times and confusing? It seems like he's doing what we want, and then all of a sudden, he stops and starts doing something else, something that we didn't ask for. Now, you can't really be mad at him because he's dealing with this poor woman, but yet, if he hadn't stopped, if he hadn't been interrupted, if he'd stuck to the plan, my daughter wouldn't be dead. Right? Jesus cares about Jairus' daughter. He hopped to it right away. But he also cares about this woman. And he follows his own agenda. Now, I know there are all kinds of sappy quotes about God's perfect timing. I know, because I googled looking for some good quotes, and they're all horrible. Um, This is a story about a Jesus who seems to have his priorities wrong. What do I mean by that? Well, if this was an emergency room, you know, or a battlefield with triage going on, and you've got these two people that both need healing, it would be inappropriate, maybe even medical malpractice, to deal with this woman who's had a chronic condition for 12 years. Yes, she's got a chronic condition. Yes, it's serious, but it's not life-threatening. The little girl, that condition is urgent. So Jesus, why would you put off dealing with the more urgent situation to deal with this woman, with this situation that's been going on for years? Not to mention the fact that Jairus is a powerful, important person. This woman didn't even want to talk to you. She didn't even want to have a relationship with you, and yet you stopped and turned all your attention to her. What is going on? Well, I think it's what leads us to this this main idea, that relationship with Jesus always involves more than you bargain for. And as frustrating as Jesus' delay is, it's actually what leads both Jairus and the woman to get so much more than they bargained for. And let me tell you, relationship with Jesus is always like that. You may think you're entering into one kind of relationship. You may even think that you can kind of keep it controlled. I remember when I first really heard that I needed to ask Jesus to forgive me for my sins. I think I was around ninth grade. And at this point in my life, my mom was a pretty zealous Christian. We'd grown up in a church where you just didn't talk about a personal relationship with Jesus. That was considered like way too kind of weird. Uh, And so I'd heard about this idea from my mom, but she went to like four Bible studies a week. So when I first heard like, you need to ask Jesus to forgive you for your sins and and put your trust in him, I was like, okay, I think that's true. I think I need to do that. But let me tell you, I am not going to do four Bible studies a week. Uh, You know, I think I need to go to this one meeting on Tuesday, and I guess I need to find a meeting around Thursday or Friday, and then I got church on Sunday. So, you know, every couple days I need like a little shot of Jesus. But we're going to keep this thing in nice, neat categories. My wife would tell you that's kind of how I do everything in life. So why did it surprise me that that's what I would try to do with Jesus? And then look at me here. I've been a pastor now for 27 years. 
Relationship with Jesus always ends up bringing more than you bargained for. And sometimes that's actually a little scary because you're not quite sure what he's going to do. It's like, you know, the, uh, the old illustration about, you know, Jesus, like making room in your heart for Jesus. The problem is when Jesus comes into your heart, comes into your life, he doesn't want to just sort of, you know, put up a painting here or there. He wants to basically like completely rearrange everything, throw out all your furniture and, you know, build new rooms, adding on here. Adding on. Like he just isn't content to let things kind of go just the way they've been going. It's always for your good, but it's not always comfortable. And it rarely fits our agenda or our timing, right? The delay here actually brings more to the woman and to Jairus than they even hoped for. The wisdom of Jesus guides his agenda without a doubt. And he is personally interested in a woman that most would ignore. And let me just tell you, that should be a great encouragement to us. No matter how insignificant you feel, the real Jesus stops because a woman who didn't even have the guts to ask him for help, to even interact with him, received a blessing from him, and he says, I want to know you. Who are you? Who are you? Where are you? Isn't that amazing? All she, had, all she had hope to do was to touch his garments. And Jesus says, I'm not content with that. I want to know you. I want to know the story. I want to give you the dignity to actually give testimony to what's happened in your life. And she's kind of freaked out by that. But she does it. And I can't help but think it's because she sees the look in Jesus' face that invites her to say, okay, this isn't really what I, what I was uh, wanting, but Jesus, if this is what you want, this is what I want, right? See, Jesus is not going to let this woman persist in her superstitious view that he's just a miracle worker. Even though that's what she wants. That's all she wants. That's all she can hope for. And even that seems kind of outrageous probably to her. The woman just wants what Jesus can do for her. She's too afraid, too ashamed to actually hope for more than that. That I could actually have a relationship with this rabbi? That he could want to talk to me and interact with me? Are you kidding? I just, just let me touch his garment and then slip away. And Jesus says, no, I've got such a bigger plan for you. Jesus insists on meeting her, interacting with her. You know, my, my wife sometimes does, has a little sermon she preaches, uh, particularly to some of the ladies who maybe feel like they've lived in ways that they would never deserve a really good guy. She's got this little sermon it's real short, but she preaches it all the time. Better single than settle. I wonder how often all of us, guys and girls, shame keeps us from asking or expecting anything big from God. Don't let shame hold you back. What are you afraid to hope for tonight? 
I love this old hymn by John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. It's a great old story about Alexander the Great. One of his generals came to him and asked for money for his daughter's wedding. He wanted to have a wedding for his daughter, and so he comes to Alexander and asks him, and he asks for like a crazy amount of money. And Alexander smiles and says, yeah. Well, one of the other generals is like listening in on the scene. He's like, like that was crazy. Like I thought you were gonna be so offended at that request that you were just gonna, you know, maybe even like court-martial the guy. Alexander said, no, you don't understand. He honored me in making such a request. Because in making such a request, he shows that he believes I am fabulously wealthy and incredibly generous. What do our prayers say about what we believe God is like? Do we believe that he's fabulously wealthy, fabulously powerful, and fabulously generous? Do we believe he's full of pity, joined with power. What can we hope for? Well, the book of Ephesians, Paul writes to the Ephesians that God can do more than we can ask or imagine. I know there's a lot of creative people in this room. Let me tell you, the Bible says you can't even imagine what God can do. That's pretty big. Well, how about the woman? She wants to be healed. She wants to slip away unnoticed. Instead, she meets Jesus face to face, sees his smile as he loves her in the midst of her suffering. And then Jesus dignifies her by inviting her to give a public witness to what's happened. And he commends her faith. The delay, though, also brings something for Jairus. He gets more than he asked for as well. See, Jairus wants Jesus to stop his daughter from dying. And he has enough faith to ask Jesus to come cure her fever. But once she's died, well, then everybody says it's pointless. We don't know what Jairus thought. He doesn't get a chance to say, well, come anyway, Jesus. Jesus overhears the conversation. And he just butts in, doesn't he? Sometimes he does that, you know. <laughs> you think like, yeah, I'm not going to tell him what I really want. Like, he doesn't know. He, he, he delights in butting in sometimes. I just got to warn you. The delay ends up bringing Jairus more than he asked. How so? Well, what Jairus wanted was a demonstration of the power of Jesus to heal disease. What he gets is a beautiful demonstration of the tenderness of Jesus. I love the way that the story describes in, in, in intimate detail what happened. Jesus goes into the room where the little girl is laying there. He takes her by the hand. And like I would wake up my daughter when she was 12. Honey, it's time to get up. That's what he says. It isn't like, be healed. No, it's honey, it's time to get up. It's time to get up. The tenderness of Jesus. And don't you know, we need not just a demonstration of the power of God, the power of Jesus, but the tenderness of Jesus. And there's 
demonstrated. Jairus would not have experienced the tenderness of Jesus if his daughter had not died. Now, that does not mean that every frustrating timing of God situation that you endure, that you'll be quickly, easily able to figure out, well, why did that happen? Don't beat yourself up or, or drive yourself crazy trying to figure that out. But know this, Jesus is always about trying to help you understand that he is bigger and better and more beautiful than you believe. He's always about that. He's always about revealing who he is, and he's so much more than a one-dimensional savior. He's so much more than just somebody you cry out to when you need help. He's so much more than somebody who says, you know, I wish you hadn't done that. He cares about how we live. He cares about everything because he's married himself to us. And what kind of marriage would it be if he didn't care, right? He does. We're going to sing this, uh, this last hymn. I'm going to pray as, uh, as the team comes back up. But it's, it's really one of my favorite hymn texts, um, so much so that I, I had to come up with a melody so that we could sing it. Um, it's by this lady, Ann Steele. Ann Steele lived back in the 1700s, and she's the first really significant female hymn writer. She's also the first uh, hymn writer to write real laments. And I love how in this hymn, she really just wrestles so honestly with God. But I hope you'll notice as we sing this hymn, um, the way she just won't let go of the character of God, even in the midst of her sorrow, even in the midst of her unbelief, she still clings to the revealed character of God. This is a, a wonderful old hymn called Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing it. Lord, we do thank you that you are full of pity joined with power. We thank you that you are not just a genie in a bottle, but you are a tender yet powerful savior. And we pray that, that we would trust you more as we come to know you more. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.